Welcome back, horror fans, to the Week in Horror podcast. This week, we're covering November 1st through November 7th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm JL, and with us tonight is Angela, and as always, Eugene. Hey, how's it going, everyone? What's up, everybody? Awesome. Oh, man. Well, October is over. We are past Halloween and getting into Turkey Month, but that is does not mean that there will be an end to the horror, because even Thanksgiving has horror movies. So, but uh, something really, really cool that I wanted to uh, let all of our listeners know about. We have something very, very neat that we are giving away. I was able to land a copy of Trivia Pursuit, the Ultimate Horror Edition. Nice. So cool. It's freaking amazing. So I've got it sitting here beside me. We're going to give this thing away. We are kicking off November with a giveaway. So this big badass game, we are going to give this away to to someone. All you have to do is like, comment, and subscribe on this video when it hits on YouTube. So you guys will hear it on uh, all the podcast sites. You'll hear it first there, but it will drop on Wednesday, November 4th. This will drop on Wednesday, November 4th. Wow, that is... On YouTube. So all you have to do is like, comment, and subscribe, and you will be entered to win a copy of the Trivia Pursuit Ultimate Horror Edition. It'll be freaking... It's freaking badass. I've looked at it. It looks cool as hell. So I'm look, looking forward to giving that away to one of our lucky listeners. Yeah, that's super awesome. That's going to be amazing. They're going to have so much fun playing that. Absolutely. Looks really, really cool in the box. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I, have, I got lucky when I happened to land a copy of it, so... Hopefully someone will, will uh, dig the hell out of that one. I'm going to probably have to pick up a, another copy for myself because it looks cool as shit. And I'll probably school everybody at it. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm su- I'm surprised that you're actually giving it away. You're just like, oh, this will just be neat. Put it up on a shelf. <laughs> I was tempted. Don't think I wasn't. <laughs> Still is tempted. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what. So subscribe, like, and comment to make sure that you get that giveaway before JL decides to keep it for himself. Right. It's so, yes, so easy to do. Just hop on there and do it. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, before I before I change my mind. Before he changes his mind because he'll be like, Yes. Can I get a bot in there to do it? Or <laughs> so, so uh but, so before we kick everything off, before we uh, talk, you know, we jump into the movies that we've selected tonight. Uh, how are you guys doing? Because we are, we're, you know, this whole situation, we're all either on lockdown or we're we're stuck wherever we are. And Halloween kind of sucked this year because nobody could go out. Um, what are you guys up to? I know Eugene, you just finished uh, a forty-eight hour up in Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. So I just finished a shoot up in Oklahoma that went really well. Um, definitely, definitely a really good film that we got out of it. And then on top of that, and then I watched, I actually watched a horror movie last night that I never even heard of because I, I love cheesy horror movies. So I was like, let's, let's find a cheesy bad movie. And it was called, uh, You Can't Kill Stephen King. Oh, I have heard of that one. I have too. Boy, it's a movie. <laughs> it meets the qualifications of it being a movie. <laughs> well, ju- judging by the trailer, yeah, I could definitely say it, it, it that it's a movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> as as we as we like to say here at Weekend Horror, they got it in the can. Good for yes, them. Yes, they got they, it in the can. <laughs> and they somehow got distribution, so there's that. It, yeah, they say they somehow it made it to my screen, so they did something right. <laughs> was it as uh, oh. cheesy as you were hoping? Oh, it was it was cheesy and more. Plus cheesy plus. Okay. Yeah, che- <laughs> nice. It was awesome. Um, basically, anybody who made noise, the, the, this was a town that Stephen, Stephen King lives in, and all the residents are afraid of making noise and disturbing him while he writes. So they kill people who make noise. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. So think of it as a quiet place, minus the good production, the story, acting, set locations, camera work. Well, well, here's the question. So the quiet part. Does Stephen King even show up in the movie? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Of course not. Oh, oh okay. Well. Of course not. Why? Yo, why would he? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Not. <laughs> like, like, no. It's he. You have like a masked killer, and at some point, his glasses that look like Stephen King's glasses fall off and break, hinting that it's Stephen King. But no, he's not in it. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, so yeah. So watch that last night. That was interesting. Sweet. Nice. And Angela, uh, I know this is your second time uh, hosting on the show. And thank you so much for covering for Alex. Alex got called down to Austin uh, to deal with some uh, uh, family emergency. So he had to leave early. Um, he'll also be gone next week. Johnny O will be helping us out. He'll be making an appearance on the show, which would be really, really cool to have him back for, I think, like his sixth time. Um, <laughs> but Angela, what have you got going on? I think that you... Like myself, uh, we re- kind of as a couple, we have forayed into the world of, of I would, what would say I you know, I made a podcast and I think she you're firing up a YouTube channel or you're setting you're you get it set up yeah yeah I'm getting it set up um that's something I'm kind of dabbling with and just kind of figuring out what exactly I want to do before I take the huge plunge I mean I've fallen through a lot of uh, YouTube holes so I'm uh, well versed in that but. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube is YouTube is a YouTube is a prairie dog field. Yes, yes. it is. Whoop! And how did I end up over here? Okay, well, here I am. <laughs> you go from like cat videos to all of a sudden it's like here's people lighting themselves on fire, and you're just like, how did I get here? I, well, Why? Well, like how? How did I go and from you, that? And, and then you then you try to escape, and you wind up at flat Earth. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no, I ended up watching a bunch of Neil deGrasse Tyson, so. <laughs> ah, there you go. So, yeah. Well, sweet. Well, whatever you come up with, we will be sure to let our listeners know what you've got going on. Uh, whatever uh, whatever you decide to pursue in that, there's obviously many things that you can do on YouTube. Um, I, myself, I have my own little channel where I, you know, talk about my, uh, where I basically, de- you know, I debate and debunk uh, woo believers and other silly nonsense like Flat Earth and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'll be look- we'll be looking forward to seeing what you come up with. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. So, Angela. We're here to talk about movies. So, what do we have up first? All right. Up first, we've got Hell House LLC. Okay, it's written and directed by Stephen Cognetti, uh, starring Gore Abrams, Alice Bach, uh, Danny Bellini. Um, It's basically a uh, documentary-style movie that is talking about an unexplained malfunction that caused the death of... 
like 15 tour goers on this haunted house. So basically the, it, it, it tells the story of, um, how the hell house crew bought this, um, motel that was like foreclosed and all jacked up and everything like that. And they were like, this is going to make an awesome haunted house. You know, most of the work was done for us. And you know, yeah, well they ended up buying the one that was already haunted. So I guess they did get their money's worth. (laughs) <laughs> the house does the house does all the work for them. <laughs> I, I know plus some. <laughs> and you know this came this came out in 2016, which is really really interesting because I think it was about I would say the the late 2000s that we started seeing kind of a an uptick in the kind of extreme haunted houses. You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, the ones that yeah, have to so- sign waivers and and like uh in the in the tiny print it's like may include light torture and you're like what exactly is light torture like what is that <laughs> like, are you going to gently waterboard me like what, what is that the answer is yes <laughs> i mean probably <laughs> yes yeah, so they, they actually have so they started coming up with these like hardcore horror houses um and some of these have gotten to the point where it's like a you have one of them and it's a McCammy Manor, and you have to sign a forty-page waiver, forty, and pages? you have to have a physical from a doctor. Oh crap! And you have to actually do a video interview because they only they only let so many people in every year and there's more than 24,000 people on a waiting list so they hand pick everybody to go into it and the house itself it lasts about 8 hours and out of everybody they've done they've been doing this for the past like let's say it's like 10 years no one has ever made it 8 hours you know i've i've actually heard about this thing and uh, well, it sounds extreme. It really does. And I've heard some tales of uh, you know, some of the you know, some, some people have related what they've encountered going into this particular haunted house. But I have actually heard that in, that within the contract and the waiver that you sign in it, that uh, it technically that I think you have to last a minimum a minimum of eight hours. But it could go. It, you pretty much have to be in there until it ends. Oh, so it could just keep going. And the, yeah, and and so it does just keep going and going and going, and until eventually it forces you to quit. And so, and uh, there have been people who have made it, who have actually made it, but then they turned around and then they've claimed because you remember the waiver is like forty pages long. They've claimed that they somehow violated the waiver or violated the contract in some way, and like they accidentally touched one of the other one of the actors because you're not allowed to make any contact with the actors at all. And they'll just, uh, and then that'll void the whole thing, and you won't, you won't be able to Aww. claim all the money. I think it's like ten, like twenty thousand dollars or something like that. But uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. So in essence, uh, just from the rumors, I can't. This is not corroborated. I'm just this is the, what people have said that it's actually like a haunted house that's a legit straight up torture chamber. Jesus. Yeah, it is. It is to the point where they'll they'll actually do things like waterboard. They will put live insects and snakes on you. They'll lock you in confined areas. They will dunk your head underwater for large amounts of time, like to the point where uh, you feel like you're going to drown. And there's even been reports of if you puke, because they make you eat like some stuff is like rotten eggs. And if you Ugh. puke, they'll take your vomit and force it back into your mouth. 
Oh, that's so gross. Yeah, this, there's some there's some there's some wild shit out there. It's 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 I don't I you gotta wonder what the the impulse is that to to do the extreme hunt. Like for example, because in Hell House LLC, the the team of individuals they find a legit instead of like you know setting up a a, a temple like like here in Texas we have many many haunted houses and they're, they're all they they are not facilities that were previously they built the facility specifically for the haunt. Um, but this is very similar to the one that we have in Fort Worth. Angela, what's the name of it? It's Cutting uh, Edge. Cutting Edge, right? Cutting Edge. Yeah. So Cutting Edge Haunted House is actually in an abandoned meatpacking plant and they over in Fort Worth. And they bought the place out and they turned the whole thing into this one giant haunt. The entire experience lasts about an hour, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a it's a very now, in cool Hell, in Hell House LLC. They did the exact same thing. They find this old abandoned. Uh, it was like an uh, almost condemned uh, hotel called like the Hotel Ab- uh, the Hotel Abaddon because it's in Abaddon, New York, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Abaddon also being the name of like one of the chief you know generals of hell or some shit. But uh, yeah, that, that's beside the point. <laughs> so they take they take over this place and start renovating it because they've got like forty something days to Halloween. And it's a one night thing, so they let people in. They you know, turn it into this, you know, big, you know, uh, extreme interactive uh, haunted house with Leo, you, know, you know, really, really pushing the limits. And it turns out it's full of fucking ghosts and shit. But that it seems to be the tra- that that was the trend that these extreme haunts will take over abandoned places or condemned places that they can just they they can basically lease out very very quickly use it temporarily and while I know it adds to the mystique of it it they, these places can be quite dangerous which is wild and it just adds into you makes you question why why the draw to such extreme horror why push the boundaries there is it, you know to push the boundaries of the, of the imagination or is it you know there's a certain type of person that really gets off on this stuff which is fascinating to me it's something about pushing your limits. And I think with any kind of a hobby, we want to see how far we can go, especially when you have something that hasn't been challenged. Like I was I was sitting there, I was looking yesterday at, like they have the Spartan race. And so you have like the three mile one that you see a lot of people do. It has like 20 something obstacles. And then they have like a, like a more hardcore one. It's like eight miles and something like that. And then they have the most hardcore one, which is a 24 hour race. Like it's 24 hours nonstop, a hundred something obstacles. <sighs> uh, it traverses like 50 plus miles. It, it, I mean, <clears throat> not 50, I think it's like 30 miles, something like that. And people sign up for that and only a handful of people even complete it but we want we we want to know how far could we go if we were in that situation how would we actually respond and the only way to know is to actually be in it well and it's the same thing with even like reality tv shows now i mean there was Sur- survivor but now there's like naked and afraid now there's alone in the arctic where you you know have what like 10 items and you're up where it gets negative 40 degrees and you're just trying to outlast everybody else in this extreme kind of environment. So, I don't know. Everybody's just ready to uh, to push and see, you know, what their limit really is. So we could say it's it's, it's kind of like a form of escalation. That, you know, like shock rock because, you know, you know, back in the day, Elvis Presley was shock rock. And then, you know, eventually you get something like someone like, you know, Kiss was shock rock. Then, you know, Ozzy Osbourne. Then eventually you've got Rob Zombie, then Marilyn Manson, and 
you know, it just keeps going. And going. I think uh, someone's going to get mad at me because I left Guar out of there. But yeah, you, get, <laughs> you know, the rockers get more and more extreme. So a natural, ex- uh, I say a natural evolution as we get numb to the uh, to the old stuff. It's time to ramp it up. You know, yeah, I, th- I think it is, and pl- plus on top of that, you're guaranteed. No matter how horrific experience is, you're guaranteed an experience that you're going to remember. Those th- you're going to take those stories with you for the rest of your life, and I think people are looking for something like that. Whether it's good or bad, it's a story you tell on your deathbed. Right, yeah. right. Because I feel That's like interesting because, uh, and I, you know. I thought it was pretty cool because yeah, uh, Hell House LLC is is a found footage film, but it's found footage from the uh, in actually I would say it's a combination of found footage and actual like shot film because uh, some of it takes place outside of there's a, a framing narrative which is the investigation that takes place after the events of the haunted house. Then there's the found footage part which is them going in and documenting the setup of the haunted house and then. Uh, the little security cameras they have everybody everywhere that allow them to watch in kind of like infrared to make sure you know the the customers are all you know are they're safe and everybody's taken care of and there's no accidents. So we get a combination of all of this footage, and it's a very it's a I thought it was it's a very very decent story. The acting is pretty is pretty solid, and I thought a good open and close deal it has a you know wasn't really a twist that you would be surprised by at the end. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, I could kind of expect that. Well shot, well done, well, uh, well, you know, the cinematography is pretty strong on it. But this turned into a trilogy, which is it, which I thought was interesting because we've talked a lot about uh, found footage on this channel before, and it's really hit or miss. Right. We've said it many times. And, and you know, the, the certain little things that are necessary. Now, this first one, Hell House LLC, did really have that because one of my favorite parts of it was – You'd be looking through the camera, and the camera would pick up things that the people who are shooting, who are people who look at the camera, obviously don't see. So, like, it'll pass by really quick, and you'll see somebody standing there. You'll see, like, you know, one of the mannequins, one of the the evil clown mannequins they've used have come to, like, they've moved positions. And you as the audience, you notice it, but, you know, everyone else doesn't. And it's minimalist stuff like that that really makes found footage work. Right, and, I mean, JL knows that I'm not a huge fan of found footage movies. I'm just not. I don't. I don't really like them. But Hell House, I I don't mind. Like I actually think it was really well done. And even though it is a found footage, which I'm not usually a fan of, I did really enjoy this movie. So yeah, because it's it seems like we've been getting a lot of found footage lately. Maybe it's the time of year that found footage films come out. Um. But you're you're right. The thing, the thing about found footage, when it's done well, it has this like realness that traditional narrative doesn't have. Like that's we take movies like say Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch. Why are they so scary? Because they feel real. It, it it's just it's hard with a lot of found footage films. It's hard to carry that to carry that through because well, I think once they again, force it. you always got to explain why there's a camera. And I think with Hell House. Doing it the way they did it, where they're reviewing footage after the act, after like the incident happened, is better because it's kind of same thing with Blair Witch, except you actually have some traditional shots where they interview people. Um, yeah, but I, it, it it wasn't bad. It wasn't. It it was it was a fairly decent film, and uh, I don't think it ranks up there with like 
you know, Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity or or even the first Grave Encounters, of which I'm a particularly big fan of. Because um, Grave Encounters turned the paranormal, the paranormal investigation, that's the reason they have the cameras, is they're actually trying to capture evidence of the paranormal. Um, but for the premise of, you know, we're setting up the awards, it's a traveling Halloween, it's a traveling Halloween show, and we're looking for a space, this is what we do, and these, you know, this is the footage from the cameras, is actually pretty sound. Um, it's very similar to, uh, the, uh, another, another Halloween film, The Houses October Built. Right. Which is very, very similar. Um, and, you know, I would say, I wouldn't say they're, they're very much alike, but, you know, that, where instead of, uh, the cameras following the people, because in this one, in Hell House, the cameras were following the people setting up the haunt, whereas in the Houses October Built, that was the customers documenting themselves looking for the extreme haunt. So, you know, anyways, you can fit it in there. And they did make it into a trilogy. There's a Hell House 2 and a Hell House 3. Um, I have not yet seen Hell House 3 yet. It's actually on my watch list. I just got done watching Hell House 2. I, once again, it felt real good found footage is lightning in a bottle. And if you don't, it's very, I would say, it's very, very hard to capture it the second time. And I don't think it did. So I thought that the trilogy was a little forced. That there's a story there. You could expand it, but was it really necessary? Uh, I I mean, I don't know. Um, I haven't seen the second or the third one yet. And I do? felt like, I mean, I felt like with a, I feel like with a lot of sequels, they're cash grabs. Like, sequels already right off the bat. Yeah, obviously there are good sequels out there. But sequels right off the bat, I'm kind of like... Uh, does it really need one? Can it really be a one and done and then move on? But eh, some people, some people ride off of that. Did they do um, found footage for two and three also? Did they do found footage for um, Hell House two, yeah. two and three also? Yeah, yeah, both of those, both of those were done in the same vein. Um, it pretty much it you know, the, the next two flush out the history of the house and the history of what. The uh, the people that were there, or the flesh out the history of the hotel and what the people who were there before were trying to do by you know, opening up a, a portal to hell. And, you know, it's, I mean, the storyline's okay. I mean, it's pretty boilerplate. Um, See, if. But yeah, I just felt it's, it's kind of unnecessary. It's kind of like, hey, the, the first one was successful, so let's keep it running and let's keep going and uh, try with, you know, try and milk it for what we can. And uh, it's always, I always feel, feel it's a shame when a, a decent, at least a decent, uh, film idea gets a little bit of traction, makes a little bit of money, and then we just gotta like you know rip out of it as much as we can, or you know get as much cash out of it as we can. Uh, but that's just the nature of the business. And uh, there are some people who will really really dig it. If they're really really big fans of found footage, they'd really dig all three films. But I highly recommend Hell House LLC. It's a decent little one, made all the better because the acting is pretty solid. All the cast, the 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 cast felt like a group that does this, that works together constantly and knows each other very well. So I thought it was pretty. I thought it was pr- a pretty impressively well done uh, film for what it, uh, for what it was trying to do. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. All right, let's uh, give it to the audience. Do you guys enjoy haunted house? What's uh, what's your uh, favorite haunted house you've ever been to? Let us know. Definitely let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. We'll save them up and we'll give them to Alex when he gets back. Yes. It'll, make him feel, it'll make him feel happy. Such a sweet <laughs> present. All right, Eugene, what do we have up next? All right. Diving into, speaking of sequels, diving into a big franchise Released November 1st, 1985, we have Nightmare on Elm Street 2 
Freddy's Revenge. All right. Directed <laughs> Freddy's Revenge. He comes back. And it was directed by Jack Shoulder. And it was based on characters created by the great Wes Craven, of course. And then it stars Mark Patton, Kim Myers, Robert Rolser, Hope Lang, and of course, Robert England. Robert England, the man. The man. The man, the myth, the legend himself. And so basically it picks up it picks up a couple of years right after the events of the first film where you have the, you have the family that actually move into the home of where Nancy used to live and they begin to get terrorized by of course Freddy Cougar. This was an interesting one. I um I'm actually a fan, very similar to being a fan of Halloween 3 season of the witch. <laughs> um Freddy's Revenge felt like a really strong departure from the Nightmare series and that's why I don't think it sat well with a lot of audiences. Um and it's also why we saw a hard turn back to what made the first one really really good in the same kind of choices they just ramped it up which in Dream Warriors. But Freddy's I think there's a special place for uh for Nightmare 2. Because this this film is an example of of a director and a production company willing to take risks and do something unexpected, which I really, really, really dug in this one. It, t- it takes you by surprise. The reason the film doesn't sit so well with a lot of people, and I don't think it's because they don't like it. I don't think, and it's definitely not because it's not. It's a bad film. It's actually a very good film. It expands upon Freddy's backstory and. It has some top-notch special effects that go into this to really, you know, making him the 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 scary figure that he is. You know, the coming out of the body scene when he's cutting when he's cutting his way out of, uh, um, freaking uh, shit, Jesse when he's cutting his way out of Jesse's body. Yeah, uh, the the mm-hmm. the blades come out of the hand. And everything that's a sick ass scene when he comes through the when he we uh, interrupts the pool party and uh, <laughs> just goes crazy <laughs> it's just such a br- such a brilliant scene uh when he do what he uh, I always, I remember seeing this when I was a kid and that whole freddy jumping through the glass and then just vanishing oh, oh yes. that, yeah. that, that just that just that just got me so there was some really really impressive stuff in this one and I don't think it gets the love it des- it should it deserves outside of people who are hardcore fans of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise because there were really, really risky choices in in what they did here. In the portrayal of the protagonist, obviously we're going to, you know, we're alluding to the, um, to the homoerotic overtones and the subject material of it. You know, the, uh, there was there were things that put people off because this was 1985, and some of the themes and some of the depictions of uh, the male figures in this film really kind of put people off. But that's the mark of really, really excellent directorial work, and the fact that the actors were willing to go to to go there and portray that story just makes it all the better. Um, it really, really was good. I, every director should be able to jump in there and do that. Yeah, that's it, this was something I remember seeing it when I was I saw it when I was young and then seeing it again being older definitely picked up on some things because we when when I watched this as a kid a lot of like say the the homoerotic stuff he didn't really pick up on as much just being young and then going back I was like a oh 
there's a lot of man ass in this film. Oh, I did a not lot. realize that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's oh, a good like well, oh, hello. <laughs> well, looky there. Or like, or, or, or like when the when the coach catches him in the gay bar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. The, and then and then forces him to go and run laps at school. Like it's like in the middle of the fucking night. <laughs> <laughs> so it it is. I feel like with this one that this is probably the most polarizing one. It's one where you either probably like it or you hate it, which is usually a sign of a lot of risky films in it. It's kind of like the risk payoff. You're right in terms of the visual effects. The visual effects in it are um, are amazing. Where Freddy Krueger tears the skin off his head and you see his brain like pulsating. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, just great, great effects like that in it. Um, I mean, it definitely the first one is great with the fact that this kind of this takes it up a notch, which is really which is really hard to do. Now, do you think that they um, were just doing that to try and and top the first one? Do you think some of those risky choices were just because they were like, "How much more can we do?" Maybe on it, maybe at least in terms of the kill wise, at least maintain that same quality because I mean, the first one has. Oh yeah, the, f- the first one. Oh my goodness. That movie has so many great no, and actually not a lot of people die in the first one, but those kills a lot of those kills are memorable. That's that one thing True. about that film because I think it's only like five people die in it or something like that. five or six people die total in it, but each one counts. I think in this one the it was the pool scene the the pool scene um where he where you know, he busts through after after um after. Yeah, kissing Lisa. I think it was. Uh, yeah, after kissing Lisa in the cabana, um, that whole pool breakdown scene was just magnificent. I thought it was brilliant, and just you know the one dude just trying to like talk to Freddie and be like, "Hey, man, it's all cool." He's like, "Yeah, you're fucking dead." <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, the, the dude looks like that, and he's got this fucking massive bladed glove in his hand. Yeah, you you're not talking this cat down. He's here. He's here to party. <laughs> so, but it was the it was the pool scene and the the body transformation scene that always got me because that was so so brilliantly done. As far as it, I think that goes up there because this is nineteen eighty five. This goes up there with the the face pressing through the wall, you know, gag or the the upside down, you know, the 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 the, the bed spewing blood, spewing like a hundred gallons of blood in the air. So really, really good stuff. That's I really really loved that. The night we can always we've always been able to depend on the or obviously we were able to depend on the nightmare series for always giving us really really interesting special effects and interesting choices in the effects that they utilized. Um, really really good, and I think in some ways with both the choices of the director, the choices of the actors, the way the storyline played out, and some of the very cool special effects, I think that this one actually may have been better than the first film. Ooh. Ooh. Ah. I, I mean, I think in some ways it was just because, I, I mean, I do like the fact that it, it did take those risky choices and it just kind of like touched on some things that you didn't realize when you were younger, but you rewatch it when you're older and you're like, oh, oh, I. Okay. <laughs> so, so with, with Nightmare on Elm Street, first of all, Nightmare on Elm Street has it's. One of the best franchises in terms of even consistency uh, throughout, because the first one's great. I do, I do enjoy this one. I definitely enjoy some parts of this one, and then he comes back with Dream Warriors, and it's, it's, Dream Dream Warriors is amazing. 
on it. Um, but anytime you go, you get a major iconic serial killer in a party where he can just go crazy. He pops out of a deck and just starts slashing people left and right. I'm going to enjoy it. I just am. I'm going to enjoy it. That's what I like to see. <laughs> and you know, a, fan, a fantastic thing about Freddy being the fact because of who he is, you get some of the most creative kills. You get some of the most creative special effects behind it because you can have Freddy and all of a sudden the pool catches on fire. Yes. And we're just like, yeah, I can believe that. Like sure, doing this now, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> okay. I I thoroughly I thoroughly dug it. They they, uh, shoulder did it took a, what worked in the first film, expanded upon it, took it in an interesting direction, and challenged the audience as well as entertained them. And this is a horror film. This is Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger disturbs people. Freddy Krueger is both disgusting and terrifying. And Freddy Krueger makes you yo fear closing your eyes and going to sleep. And he disturbs your, I would say he disturbs the status quo and throwing something in somebody's face that unsettles them. That is the purpose of horror. That is the success, the mark of a successful horror film. And, you know, so you can agree to agree or disagree that utilizing the homosexual undertones, or the, uh, the uh, homoerotic undertones to kind of sell that point it left the viewers off kilter, which was really, really brilliant because it doesn't play into the overall story. The overall story is Freddy's trying to, you know, kind of fight his way back into reality. And he's using Jesse's fear to do that by kind of using his body as kind of like a portal to get back into the world. And that's, you know, that's pretty much it. And then of course, you know, love, pow- love powers, you know, love, you know, conquers all. And, you know, his love for, you know, Jesse's love for, uh, Lisa, we, uh, we, it was Lisa, right? Yeah, so many fucking names in my head. <laughs> I think it was Lisa. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then Jesse's love for Lisa, Lisa's love for him will over, you know, overpower Freddy and he goes up in a, in a ball of flame. But that's a pretty boilerplate story. So let's keep the audience off kilter. Let's keep them, you know, anxious. Let's show them things that may make them squirm that don't have anything to do with the story. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant uh, setup right there. I think the director saw it. He saw what the story was and said, I know a way to twist this to make the audiences really, really squirm. It has nothing to do with the villain in the film. So really, really good. Um, I, I Honestly, ahead of its time. It, it, uh, it did not fare well at the theaters and was almost the death of the franchise until uh, I believe Wes Craven came back and kind of salvaged it with Dream Warriors. And sometimes that happens when you have films that are ahead of their time is the audiences at that time don't understand it. Because you, you, you can watch a film today and be like, oh, with the homoerotic stuff, you just be like, oh, okay, that's fine. Like this, it's like it's just it's no big deal. So, oh, this is just the way this character is. Cool. But you're thinking, what, 35 years ago? Oh yeah, right. Uh, just a completely different time, a different generation going to the theaters at that time. Um, people, you know, people who grew up in the forties and fifties, sixties, something like that. You, you can see how people would be uncomfortable by that. And but the thing is, is it's still to me, it's still memorable. 
And when you have a franchise that's had so many movies come out, and I remember you're like, hey, this, hey the script is up. We're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I instantly remembered it. Like, just right off the bat. So oh, yeah. the film the film stays. The film has staying power and is one that actually stands out in the franchise. So, but this is actually, this is actually what I want to ask the audience. Do you think that Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, was ahead of its time? Is it something, is it something that maybe would have done well in theaters today versus 1985? Let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> do it do it do it do it I'll do it for you <laughs> remember alex is lonely we have to we have to make sure he feels included <laughs> alex comment <laughs> <laughs> yes all right jail what do we got next all right, a uh, particular favorite of mine because it comes from one of my favorite directors. Uh, this one released November 4th, 1988. Oof, I was eight years old. We have Cheer John Carpenter's old. They John Carpenter's They Live. I just like to I just like to say that Alex wasn't born yet. <laughs> yes, Alex is not born yet. Oh my two, two, God. Years before, two years before he was born. Oh, uh, so, he's John a Carpenter's, 90s baby? Yes, he yep. is. Oh. So, John Carpenter's They Live, directed by John Carpenter, duh, and starring, oh, sorry, directed by John Carpenter, the screenplay by John Carpenter as well, based upon 8 o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson, starring Roddy Piper, Keith David, and Meg Foster, and a slew of really, really gooey aliens. So, a fantastic little piece. Uh, John Carpenter never fails to... Surprise with some some of the stories that he that he that he either adapts or comes up with. But they live follows a drifter named George Nada, <laughs> played by played by Roddy Piper, who is just kind of drifting through life looking for work and stumbles upon and in the street on the streets of L.A. and then stumbles upon a mass conspiracy of aliens that have invaded Earth and are using broadcast signals to keep everyone dumb and kind of subjugated to, you know, enslaved to money and to sleep and not realizing what's going on, just being consumers and allowing them to basically take over the Earth. Um, but there is a resistance and... Uh, George Nada comes across this resistance and discovers a pair of sunglasses that allows him to see everything as it truly is. And it is wild. Yeah, it is. So a fantastic, fantastic film. Super, super fun. And probably as one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen in a in a in any film. Um, so you know, Roddy Piper versus Keith David. So wonderfully Those realistic. Two- like Oh. They li- they kick the shit out of each other with it's so amazing and so realistic too. There's no kung fu shit in here. This is two dudes who are like big and strong throwing down in an alley, and it is fucking hilarious. It's hilarious and painful to watch. Right? I mean, because uh, <laughs> those who know Roddy Piper was a professional wrestler, so he he can take hits. So well, yeah, I just. It- Loved the fact that he like hit the dude's car and he was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, and they're in the middle of this extreme fight and he accidentally breaks that window and he's like, 
oh man, I didn't mean to, man. <laughs> For those who don't know, that alley, that the alley brawl lasts uh, almost six minutes. It was so amazing. Because it, it, it is. This is them just straight up taking hits. Just brutal to watch. Just they're taking damage, dirty. man. Yeah, they're getting it's like they're in the dirt, and yeah, because it's just it's an alley, so they're rolling on the ground, and it is it's just two big men just straight up slugging it out, which is something that you actually don't see very often. No, no, it was a no, no art, no style at all. Uh, just a bunch of slamming each other around, what? and and some great comedic moments. Like Angela said, when he when he picks up the pipe and he's trying to beat him, and he actually smashes the back window of the of Keith David's car, and he drops the pipe. He's like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry, dude!" And Keith David freaks <laughs> Keith David freaks out and tackles it. It's just, it's so funny. Well, then he like Piper throws some wrestling moves on him, and, and then he like yeah, smashes a beer all, bottle, and the bottle like just shatters. He's like, "God damn it!" <laughs> like. <laughs> It's so amazing because the whole fight could have been avoided if Keith David had just put the sunglasses yeah. on. Because that was the point. Was, that was is it. Piper is trying to convince him to put these damn sunglasses on and see what he sees. He's like, no, I won't do it. I'm going to kick your ass and make you wear these damn sunglasses. And then we get a, a near six-minute brawl over wearing sunglasses. Yeah. And in the end. <laughs> just please put them on. Just please. I mean, in, in the end, he puts them on. <laughs> a, a, a super super fun film but it made me think so given uh, given this year that we are in 2020 the year that will be removed and, from all history books yes, <laughs> and, uh, and all the and uh, everything is, is just you, everything is just nuts and if you go onto YouTube it's just more nuts and more nuts but this movie made me think because this came out in 88 this move, movie made me think of alien conspiracies today people like David Ick who believes, you know, the reptilians and stuff like that, the the reptoids, you know, the Queen of England is a reptoid or some shit. Oh, that's but right. But alien conspiracies today. And it made me wonder if a film like this, because we watch it for nostalgic reasons. You know, we will we look back, it's like, oh, this was amazing when it came out. You know, this was this was late 80s. It was solid action, had some good one-liners. I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. <laughs> I'm all <laughs> out of bubblegum. <laughs> And just has some great, you know, some just, you know, immortal moments in this movie. But what if, I don't know if a film like this would work today because, simply because our mentalities with, obviously in 88, they did not have the internet. The internet changed everything. And the way people digest their media, the way, the way craziness like this can get out to people, mass media has kind of, I would say desensitized. People to this kind of storyline, so it wouldn't have you know really really hit people. I nowadays I don't think it would. So because our mentalities have changed so much, right? Um, See, I, I actually disagree. I think something like this could absolutely hit because we've had so much exposure to the internet and the craziness that it is on the internet. You're talking about going to YouTube and finding like a black hole of you don't know where you're going to end up. I think a movie like this would actually totally work. I mean, <sighs> I, I, I just, I think it is. I mean, you have, if you have all these conspiracy theories, such as I know your favorite flat earth, that is, a, <laughs> the, but the, the, I mean, that conspiracy is alive and well on the internet. Why not an alien? Why not another alien conspiracy? 
Well, I mean, it, and also with all of the the sightings of, you know, UFOs over airports and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know what? I think a movie could work if it were done in this time period, like instead of in the 80s. Like, because you have access to, hey, oh my gosh, well, I saw this one and there's a UFO over, you know, in China. There's one in Chicago. There's, you know. And they can connect the dots, which makes conspiracy theorists, like, grab onto it even more so because they see all of these other places that are like, oh, so it's not just here. It's over here. So what all connects it? Oh, my gosh. It must be the alien overlords. You know, like, I, <laughs> I think that it could definitely work. You know what? You know what I'm probably picking up on? I'm probably picking up on the lack of oral tradition because the internet has pretty much ended oral tradition. There's a record of anything you put on the internet. Any story you tell is going to be on there. And without that kind of, you know, telephone game that we that we used to play way before the internet where people would tell stories and the fish would get larger and larger and larger and the, the, the light in the sky became, you know, bigger and brighter and changed colors. All of a sudden there's aliens involved. And that just doesn't exist anymore. So I think that's what I may have been picking up on. Because nowadays, whenever we get alien movies, it's always about our interactions with the aliens. It's like, so there's no grand conspiracy, but there are aliens out there. Then they show up, and then obviously, you know, humans usually act like assholes. But in this way, I don't. I can't remember the last time I saw a, you know a straight alien invader. They, they were, I, I think, The Arrival, 1996, um, directed by David Tui. Uh, starring Charlie Sheen, The Arrival. That was about aliens that were already here as well. And they were trying to terraform the Earth uh, by by uh, using global uh, global warming. Global warming was their tool to terraform the Earth to the way they wanted to live and eventually kill us all off. Um, whereas in this one, it just seems to be you know, control. Like maybe they just wanted to come here and just live here and be our overlords or some shit. There's no real, I guess, motive for why they're here? Well, uh, if I remember correctly, to correct- not be killed, the motive, you know, the motive is to subjugate yourself, to basically become a slave to capitalism and become a slave to the you know, the dollar and stuff like wasn't that. Wasn't this you know, like ignore it wasn't Earth and you'll reap the rewards? Wasn't er- but wasn't Earth like their third planet or whatever that they had taken over? I think so. It was like this kind of this because they, they have like an airport set up, which you know, where they could they could trans they could uh, teleport between different worlds. And so, like, Earth was just one more stop. So they basically, like, take it over and utilize its resources for their own their own kind of, you know, personal agenda. Where all the humans, instead of just eradicating them all, just make them all slaves. Make them all slaves to their pleasures, to their desires. You know, keep them, you know, keep them, you know, fighting for that next dollar. Because, like, you know, when he puts the sunglasses on, he looks at, he looks at the dollar. It's subliminal messaging everywhere, which is really, really fucking cool. Like, so you look up there and you say, oh, hey, it's the movie theater. And then you put the sunglasses on. It's just a big-ass white billboard that says, just says consume. Or you look at the the dollar bill and, yeah, you know, dollar bill looks like dollar bill. You put the glasses on and it's it's just a white piece of paper that just says, this is your god. Yeah, that would totally work now. The fact that... I mean, approval rating of the government is probably at an all-time low right now, and people are criticizing things. I'm not going to get into the whole political part of it, but people are criticizing the way the government has responded to certain things. And then, yeah, you pull out a movie where it's like, obey, consume, this is your god, this is, you will be the slave to the dollar. I think a movie like that today would be really successful. Like, like 
like stay asleep, get married uh, and pro- propagate, and get married and pray. Yeah, just various stuff like that. It was some some of it was kind of biblical. It was really really weird. Like go forth and multiply. Like they've been doing. Like they've been here a long time, and they've integrated. You know, and they u- utilizing whatever technology they have in order to kind of blind us. It's really, really strange. Um, but of course, it ends hilariously with, you know, Roddy Piper with, uh, George Nada being successful in his mission to stop the broadcast, which results in some of the best shit <laughs> that could possibly occur. <laughs> especially, especially that final scene is so amazing. <laughs> What's the matter, baby? <laughs> <laughs> but that just goes to show the, the effect of mass media that, uh, Car- that you know, a Carpenter was able to see. I've, many people were able to see because you had, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley and Kurt Vonnegut and George Orwell were able to see the effects of mass media in literature. And then, of course, uh, I think Carpenter really, really nailed it in a very satirical way that how mass media infects our every affects our daily lives and kind of. And I would. I'm not going to say it's sinister. But kind of sneaks in oh, no, it, under the under the radar. No, it's sinister. And ingratiates itself to the point that you don't know where you end and it begins. We see that with social media. We see that um, with any kind of online interaction, where it you know the online persona is almost as important as who we are in person. And that kind of control can we've seen it can be utilized against us in varying ways to tell us what to buy. Or tell us who to vote for, or tell us, you know, the best way to get somewhere, or the best person to talk to about something. Everything instead of just going out and discovering things, there it is. We, I, I can't tell you how many times I wake up in the morning, and I reach, and there's my phone, and I and I look at my phone when I should be like waking up, stretch, yawn, get up, go to the bathroom, brush my teeth. I like this. Nope. I wake up, I reach over, and I pick up my phone. Yeah, that's it's, it's like the first thing you do. You go, you pick up your phone. If you post something on Facebook, you check who commented on it, who liked it, how many likes did I get? Well, uh, I read a really you get interesting that article about notification. Yeah, oh, notification. Oh, yeah. Who messaged? Who did this? Um, but I, I read an interesting article. It was about a journalist, and she decided that she was going to be uh, an Instagram model for six months just to see what it was like from just a journalist perspective. And she, she said that she found posts that didn't do well would cause her to actually spiral into depression. Well, why didn't they like this post? I spent a lot of time crafting this post. What's wrong with me? And after six months, she's like, I had to stop. And so she stopped and deleted her account and everything. But to get that, she found herself longing for that gratification that's that 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 hit of uh of do- oh, is it dopamine exactly yeah you just get that hit and uh, the entire uh, uh, this is a commentary in and of itself the entire achievement you know, factor in video gaming the entire achievement system in video games whether you're playing Xbox or you're playing PlayStation 1 I play World of Warcraft and you get that ding you get ding oh there's that hit of dopamine I have ding, so many achievements and you just chase that you chase that hit you know, we don't have to pump drugs into you. We just have to use your brain against you. You get that notification from Twitter. Boom. I can't tell you. I got a massive spike when when we started taking off on Twitter. When people really started following us, I was getting ding, ding, ding. Of people follow. I was like, oh, oh. It was weird. And I, and I haven't been on Twitter that long. 
And all of a sudden, we start Weekend Horror. We throw it on there. And all of a sudden, I'm getting these dings that people are following the show. And I'm just kind of like, oh, oh, that that's new. And now I'm, you know, I'm damn near a slave to Twitter. Although, you know, in my personal opinion, Twitter is cancer. But, uh, you know, we, we have our daily splatter on there. We want to, we want to entertain people. We want to you know, let people, we want to give people inspiration to watch, maybe watch a movie they, they hadn't seen yet. You know, maybe on the day that it came out. It's, yeah, we think that's kind of cool. But yeah, I checked that, I checked that. That's how terrifying it is. And while there were many authors that recognized this way early on and the effects that it would have on us, you know, I think, and there, there were movies that were done as well because there were adaptations of these books. I think Carpenter really captured it in the best way possible because oftentimes very serious subject matter goes down better as satire. Yep. Yes. And I think he did a really, really good job. It's, it's what it, it, you know, my, the Apocalypse trilogy will always be my favorite of, of all Carpenter, but they live is up there. And I, you know, I, it, you know, I would say just underneath. It's pretty much the Apocalypse trilogy, and then they they live, and then they live is right underneath that, and then it just keeps you know kind of going down until we eventually hit you know like Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> that was what I was thinking too. We were like, and eventually yeah. bottoms at Ghosts of Mars. Actually, actually, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna re I'm gonna recess. I'm gonna say that the Apocalypse trilogy is number one. Number two is Christine. And number three is They Live, because I love the movie, Christine. That, that movie's amazing. I love Stephen King adaptations. But yeah, that's something I'm very curious. I'd like to ask the audience. Mass media is such a massive part of our lives. It, in essence, is a part of every single choice we make and everything we do. They Live was a comedy, somewhat horror story um about the effects about an alien race utilizing mass media against us in order to enslave us it's a topical point do you think that this is that that they live does that this came out in 1988 is it relevant today do you think that this is a relevant topic that you think that more movies should be made to put this out do we think we should see a revival of things like fahrenheit for a uh, fahrenheit uh, 451 or a brave new world Stuff that really challenges, um, or uh, what was it? Big oh shit, Big Brother, uh, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty four. Fuck yes. Should we have? Should we have this topic? Should we see maybe a reboot of They Live done in another way? Let us know what you think of the relevance of this topic. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Either you know, sh- throw a comment down there below the video, or shoot us an email, weekendhorror@gmail.com, or you know what. Get back to us on Discord. Jump in our Discord server. The link is in the description. Join our Discord. You can interact with us right there. And we can go back and forth. Definitely check it out. All right. We have one more on our list for night. And I think Angela's got it. What do Ooh, we have? Yes, I do. All right. We're going to talk about Frailty. Came out, came out back in 2001. Um, directed by Bill Paxton. Written by Brent Hanley, uh, starring Bill Paxton, um, sorry, Bill Paxton, Matthew McConaughey, and Powers Booth. All-star cast, man. This is Yeah, you know, this was this was Bill Paxton's directorial debut. Well, he did a great, great job. Yes. Yes, um, he did. Especially considering he's also starring in it. Like, such a good job. So basically. Um, yeah, you know, no, no, another another little bit of tip. This is gonna, this is gonna freak people out because anybody who's seen this movie knows it's a, this is a really really dark fucking movie. The guy who produced this film wrote an American Tale. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> you you, you got to have range. I mean, you gotta have range. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> fingers and everything, I guess. <laughs> you know, I you know I've noticed that. That's kind of like uh, the guys behind American Horror Story, because they also created Glee. Yeah, that's true. Which could not be further from American Horror Story. <laughs> but yeah, continue on. Frailty. Okay. Sorry about that. Little, a, li- little bit, little bit of pop trivia for our for our, uh, for our well, listeners out there. Know how you like trivia? You know uh, what? What is it they have to do in order to win your horror trivia game? Trivial Pursuit? Like, like, comment, and subscribe, and you could be as good as me, but not likely. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Anyways, circling back to frailty. Um, so it's about a mysterious man arrives at the offices of um of an of an FBI agent, and he recounts his childhood to him, and uh, talks about his religious fanatic father receiving visions telling him to destroy people who were demons. Um, uh, <laughs> so it uh it goes in a direction that I didn't think it was going to go whenever I first saw this. Now, I, I first watched Frailty, like, back when it came out, and I was like, what? And I uh, recently rewatched it, and I was like, man, yeah, this is a great, great movie. Because <laughs> you've got the the father that's, uh, you know, this religious fanatic, and uh, you know, is saying that uh, an angel gave him a list of demons to kill, and it's really just, you know, people. Um, but whenever he touches them, he sees their evils, like their wrongdoings that they did and whatnot. And uh, his kids uh, were young at the time. And so he started killing them, but he would like, it was a family event. He showed the kids and had them bury the bodies. And it just, it was, it was a very dark film. <laughs> it, it definitely was. It's a really, really good film. Uh, it was something, it was basically a buddy of mine was like, hey, check this out uh, shortly after it got released on you know VHS back in 2001. And it is amazing because you see a lot of it from the kid's perspective and it's like, a, hey, Bill Paxton's like, this person's a demon. I'm going to throw him in the barn and then I'm going to kill him with an axe. Right, and meanwhile, the, the and, older one is just like, nah, you're crazy. <laughs> and yeah. the little one's like, yeah, I totally believe you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and w- what's really what's really awesome about it is throughout the film, it always, it leaves you teetering. Like, is it legit? Is it real? Or is their dad just a serial killer? Because or is it's this not like something you- this dude made up? Like, it, did this actually happen to him? Like... Exactly. So you're like you're on you're on the edge of your seat, um, trying to figure out like what is going on. Is did the kid make it up? Is his dad a serial killer? Is he actually like correct? And what's it like? What is actually going on? But one of the things that's really interesting about this film is that you take Matthew McConaughey and Bill Paxton that are playing opposites of what they normally play because usually bill paxton is like the good guy you know right. you're rooting for him in twister um he, he works a lot with james cameron he's always on like the he's either the good guy or the innocent guy i like I, I love him in true lies and we can talk about bill paxton 
all day on another podcast. <laughs> and that, that, that could be a podcast in itself. The Bill Paxton the, podcast. <laughs> where we just gush about Bill Paxton. Just all the Bill Paxton you can handle. <laughs> I seriously could. From from fish heads all the way up to uh Laura was his last studio to Big Love, man. Whatever oh, that man did was just gold. It is, it is, it is amazing. And you see him doing, he's a good guy, he's a good guy, he's a good guy. Now he was burying an axe in somebody's head. And you're like, what? what? Really? <laughs> uh-huh. No, Bill Paxton, no, Bill Paxton, don't do that. <laughs> no. It was so, so, so creepy to see McConaughey and Paxton in these roles as, because, you know, it, the way it strikes out, because we're getting the story from his son Fenton's point of view. And the way it's so expertly crafted, was so well written and expertly acted, the chops of the of the kids who played um, his sons. Um, I got to give you uh, Matt O'Leary and Jeremy Sumter were fantastic in those little roles, and as as uh, as the young kids, and then of course Matthew McConaughey. It probably nowadays he's 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 gone cross type several times. Uh, yeah, because we've seen him in Killer Joe. Um, and a, a, a smattering of other really, really off-putting roles. But uh, this was an early, early testament to, to the man's skill. To the to the person who would play the uh, you know the iconic roles in Dallas Buyers Club that would that would nab him um, that would nab him an Oscar. The the level of commitment and dedication they show you could see bits of that very, very early, early on. You know, this was no all right, all right, all right. This was not that. No, by any stretch of the imagination, um, magnificent performance of him. Bill Paxton going dark, and because you're watching it, and you're kind of like, is he crazy? Is he just this? Could I mean, you literally, he could have had a seizure, or he could have had a stroke, and seen the things that he's talking about. But no, he's like legit. You know, you it turns out this is really, really fucking happening. Um, really, and it, I think the thing that got me was for the for a good portion of the film. It blurs the line between what could potentially be mental illness and what could legitimately be divine revelation from God. And how people on the outside of that, when they see it happening, it comes off a particular way. And that, you know, people's faith rarely stands up to someone going on about how the angel came and told me to, I'd, I'd find them this, the special weapons to destroy demons that are disguised as humans on Earth. You sound like a loon. But... You know, to the, we get to see it from both sides. From Pax's side, as the fanatic, as the the fanatical fundamentalist, and his son Fenton, who is kind of like, yeah, I'm not really buying this. And then the younger brother Adam, oh, so brilliant. The younger brother Adam, who's just like, yeah, yeah, I see you, daddy. I see you, daddy. And I'm kind of like, for the longest time, you don't know that it's crazy. You 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 don't know what's really going on. You know, is the father infecting the younger son? Is the older brother just trying to protect his little brother? Such wild stuff. Well, and but, also yeah, impeccable um, performances. I love it, it when actors play cross type. And they also did a good job because you know it was whenever we are looking at them when they're children. Still, this was the summer of 1979, I believe he said. And so, in 1979, in a small town, you know, who's going to believe this kid's story whenever he goes to the town sheriff and is like, "Hey, my dad's killing people in our fucking shed." He's like, and it was in Texas. Is in Texas too. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, kid. You know, just getting the brush off, like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> Whoa. You know, not really taking it seriously at all. That poor sheriff. Well, 
You should have taken it seriously. <laughs> yeah. Did not end well. So wild. It's 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 such a well done film because as far as it I love little I love small, well crafted film. People who know their trade, people who know how to create the atmospheres that they're trying to create. The budget on frailty was only like eleven million dollars. And it grossed seventeen point four. So it was a it was a modest success. It did make its money back. And if you ever get a chance, you gotta you gotta listen. You gotta look for the interview that Bill Paxton, you know, gave when he was talking about how much money he made off this film, and how I think his that he made like five million off this movie. But then after all the costs and expenditures of being an actor, uh, all that money just vanished. And he walked. I think he walked home with like six hundred six hundred grand for doing this film. <laughs> and. When you, I love minimal films like that. I don't want to say it's minimalist, but I love smaller films like this that really with the people get a real feel for people who know how to craft. The mood, it, the film jumps so brilliantly between the sunny summer of a te- of Texas because it's 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 hot outside, but it's beautiful. You know, especially in the, in the area that they're in. You know, it it's fantastic. It's a beautiful day, and, but and then switch is so hard. But so smoothly into, you know, the kind of darkness around every corner. The, the things that people in Texas, the kind of like religious conservatives fear hiding around every corner. Creating that kind of mood, creating that atmosphere is very, very difficult and requires a, an enormous a level, a level of training and talent in order to get done. It's not something that you can just pick up on. The, from the barn to the root cellar. You know, to the outside, to the exterior scenes, to inside the office of the FBI. So well-crafted. And I, I like how you talked about minimal films. And I'm a huge fan of minimal films, too, because you have nothing to hide behind. You don't have a giant space battle that can just entertain the audience. Or these monster special effects uh, that you can really, really easily hide behind. When you have... A lower budget indie minimal film. Everything has to be on point. Everything from right. the cinematography, it's just the performances, be... the editing. Everything has to be on point, or you'll lose your audience. Yep. And it's just going to be like so incredibly visible. Like, oh wow! So they didn't do a good job of that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But whenever it's well done, it's like, damn, that was real good. Yeah, it was just, it's very, very, I mean, this this is the exact kind of filmmaking that you, that you make when, I would say, because this was 2001, before the big, you know, before the giant push into CGI and fake, you know, and everything is fake and everything is green screened. This was just classic, classic filmmaking, which is what makes it so good. It's why the actors are so comfortable. You got your camera, you got your light guys. It's a basic crew. Directors behind the camera. These guys are front. We have this beautiful set that is that is equally as much as found stuff as it is product. You know, for your production value, shooting outside. It's really, really pretty. And then just guys know what they're knowing what they do, knowing knowing how to create the scene, how to reflect Bill Paxton's characters dilemma of you know his son doesn't of his eldest son doesn't see what he sees but the youngest son does but i love how all of it was captured from the from the kids bedroom to the kitchen table all the way to the to the fbi office when matthew mcconaughey is doing his best creeper impersonation you know such good stuff and i love 
I love really talented filmmaking because it often escapes people. Some people they'll see the story and they go, "Oh yeah, is this." That's why I kind of love be, you know having been behind the scenes and seeing how the sausage is made because then you can really, really admire and respect the work that goes into the level of craftsmanship that goes into making a film like this. Yeah, the amount of work, the millions of little decisions that all have to coincide together to work to work out to make a good film. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, let's throw it to our listeners. Do you enjoy cross-type acting? Uh, let us know in the comment below. Send Alex some love letters at uh, weekendhorror at gmail.com. Definitely. And, and let us know. I'd love to hear what was your favorite cross-type performance. You know, I'm, we're talking stuff like Denzel in Training Day. You know, where they really, really cross line and do something that you would not expect. Well, I, I love it when, when, uh, or uh, what's my, one of my favorites, Tom Hanks in Road to Perdition. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh such a yeah. good movie. That was a oh, great, yeah. great movie. Yeah. Getting a chance to see talented actors kind of spread their wings and do other things that you would not anticipate. I love seeing this. So definitely either in Discord, in the Discord channel, or in the comments below or send us an email. Let us know not only do you enjoy it when your favorite actors break away, but do you, uh, you know, which ones are your favorites? We'd love to hear what you think. All right. You All right. I think so, that we have a birthday, don't we? Yes, we do. And I believe we talked about him last year, but we always, always got to give him a shout out. Uh, Hell yes, we oh, do. Personal favorite of ours. He was born November 3rd, 1946. Tom Savini, the man, the make the legend. AKA Sex Machine. <laughs> I think he was Sex Machine. I thought he was Sex Machine. Was he Sex Machine? I hope I got that right. I'm going to get so much hate if I didn't get that right. <laughs> yeah. Sex Machine. Yeah, Sex yes. Machine. Yeah. I just looked it up, yes. <laughs> you looked That's it up awesome. to make sure? Dude, I did. I double checked just to make sure. I'm pretty sure it was Sex Machine with his, with his, uh, you know, dick and balls, guns. Yeah, it was fucking sweet. <laughs> Better not get it. Oh, the dude's amazing. The dude was amazing. Oh, so yes, we did last year. We did wish Tom Savini a happy birthday, and uh, so I think of uh, man. Oh man, he's seventy uh, seventy three now. Oh, uh, he's getting man. up there, but he's still he's still going strong. I want to kind of take the take the opportunity. We talked a lot about his past last year. You tell you his history in the Vietnam War and the inspirations he took from that to become one of the greatest prosthetic makeup uh, effects men in all of in all of horror, if not the industry itself. Um, I wanted I wanted to kind of pick everybody's brains. What was your favorite work that Tom Savini did? Like the favorite movie that he worked on. Ooh, the favorite the favorite movie he worked on. Like, what's your favorite? Like, uh, Tom Savini did the work on it, and it just blows. It just blew your mind. Hmm. He really like. I really took notice of him, and I saw it when it came out. Was we were talking about Sex Machine with Dust Till Dawn. Like he was just he was so. There's a lot of memory. Well, that, that that was that was a performance though. Oh, oh! You want in terms of oh, in terms of his uh, makeup work on it? In terms, of, yeah, of his makeup work, yeah. Oh, makeup Ooh. work. Um, I would have to go. I mean, right off the bat, I mean, he did makeup work for Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah, oh. like just straight up right off the bat. <laughs> so, I mean, well, you got Friday the Thirteenth. Um, he also did Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, 
which oh that's right yeah he did yeah which I mean I I I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre too I, any movie that's too many chainsaws is just amazing. <laughs> uh, the one that always stands out now because he done on he's worked extensively with George he worked extensively extensively with George Romero he worked on Martin he worked on Dawn of the Dead Day of the Dead Monkey Shines Creep Show but the number one that he that he did the special effects and makeup for was fucking Maniac. I oh, knew you were going to say Maniac too. <laughs> the shit that that man, the, the shit that that man came up with. I mean, the whole scene when the when uh when a uh, fucking he jumps up on the car and shoots it, it shoots the driver in the face with the shotgun, and it was Tom's it was Tom Savini's head because Tom Savini, you know, he was the makeup guy, but he got a small part in. It. He got to play the boyfriend because you know he happened to have a prosthetic head of himself, a prosthetic head cast of himself. Because like, why oh, not? We need a fake head. Here's a fake head. Oh, it looks like Tom Savini. Oh, hey. Uh, why don't you be the boyfriend? Because we need to blow your head off. He's like, oh, the damn straight. And he jumps up there and he does the shooting himself. He shoots himself. He shoots his own prosthetic head in the face with a shotgun. Explodes everywhere. And then they have to quickly, you know, throw the gun in the trunk of a passing car so that they don't get called, you know, don't get caught by the cops because there was like no licenses whatsoever on that movie. But yes, the work that he did in Maniac, for as brutal as that film was, the scalping scenes. The shotgun in the face scene, all that stuff was absolutely insane and br- just brilliantly done. Because it was 1980, it was the year I was born, it's 40 years ago. And the stuff he pulled off in that, absolutely you know, terrifying. I guess I didn't realize that was him. Oh, like, I, I, what do you think, Angela? Yeah, no, I mean, fuck. I, I would normally say, like, creep show. Um, <laughs> because creep show, man. Such a good part. His stuff in Creep Show was fantastic. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's really all I need to say, right? Creep Show. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got to wonder because he worked on Friday the 13th, part parts one and four. He worked on those, but he was on the first one. He also worked on The Burning. I was just about to bring that up because we've compared Friday the 13th to The Burnings. Yeah. To be both being slasher films that take place out in the woods. And out at, at, at a summer camp with a disfigured, uh, you know, killer that hides his face and kills, you know, kills him with various instruments that you find everywhere. And, you know, typically and it's a revenge story because the killer's coming back to, a, you know, revenge the people that set him on fire and burned his face in the burning. But the, 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 the fucked up thing was because we talked about how the how, uh, the burning, they came up with the idea before Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. but Friday the 13th managed to release before the burning did, which really hurt the burning at the box office. Despite the fact that it was a pretty decent movie. It had a young Holly Hunter in it. Um, but yeah, he worked on both. So that's got to be wild. That is. Like that, like I said, like that, that's crazy. And also, that's why it pays to be first. You don't have to, have to, you don't have to be the first one with the idea. You got to be the first one to release it. Unless you're the guy doing the makeup and special effects, then you can be involved in all I of them. I think you're in both. Yeah, true. <laughs> it doesn't matter yes. at that point. Hey, you need a makeup person? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> he's, such an, he's such an amazing freaking dude. I love seeing every time his work pops up. And he loves his job so much. Whenever he talks about you know, the stories he has to tell, the the probably millions of stories he has from being in the industry as long as he has. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, and everybody, if you haven't gotten the opportunity, and some people, some some hardcore horror fans consider it sacrilege that it should never have been remade. But Tom Savini did direct the remake of Romero's Night of the Living Dead. He did it with Romero's blessing. Romero said, go for it. That's the one that he, he cast Tony Todd in uh, the lead role of that. So give that one a look. It's Tom Savini's birthday. 
here on November third. Go back and look at his at his uh his you know big one of his big directing opportunities was to direct the Night of the Living Dead remake that came out in 1990. It was re- actually really really good, a very faithful remake with the Tom Savini kind of you know attitude to it. So definitely want to show some love to one of the best uh, makeup and effects guys who have ever lived. Uh, happy birthday to Tom Savini. Happy, happy birthday, birthday, Tom. Day, Tom. All right. Well, that closes out another episode of Week in Horror. Man, we want to thank our listeners for coming out and listening to us. We love you guys. We could not do this without your constant support. If you want to check in with us, check out weekinhorror.net, where we have links to all of our episodes. And, of course, if you throw your email address down onto our mailing list, you can get entered in for your mystery shirt, your horror mystery Such shirt. We give a one cool away shirt. Every- Just saying. We give one away. We give one away every single month. So get your name on that list so we can maybe get you some horror swag. And you'll find the information about our new, our current giveaway with the Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition up there on the website here shortly. And, of course, links to everything. You can check out our bios. You can get links to wherever you listen to podcasts. And, of course, links to YouTube. Or you can follow us there. As always, we want your feedback, your comments, your questions, your criticisms, your love letters for Alex. We want them all. So be sure to send them to weekinhorror at gmail.com. You can get our daily splatter at Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com slash horror and at horror. You get a little bit of horror knowledge every single day coming straight to you in your feed. Something you may not have known, maybe a movie recommendation of something you haven't seen yet. So definitely jump on those. You can follow us at you on YouTube as well because we have a YouTube channel now. Thanks to Eugene. He got that all set up for us. And every Wednesday we drop our week's episode. And like, subscribe, and comment on this one when it drops on the 4th and you will be entered to get the week uh the trivial pursuit um ultimate horror edition you will get that or you you you, you could uh, get a chance to win that and as always if you truly love what we do here at this podcast listening is the best thing you can listening and sharing we love it but if you'd like to go a step further if you're able to times are tough we know that if you are able to support the show www.patreon.com slash horror. You can help support the show and make a better show. You could be a horror fanatic and really, really help us out. You can get early access to our bloodbath debates and our after dark sessions with our special industry guests. You can also get free horror movies every single month. We have a tier wheel out for that. You could support us for as low as a dollar a month. You can help out making this show all the better, bring us more original and better content to you every single week and every single month. We love you guys, but if you're not able to, it is okay. We love the fact that you tune in and listen. We couldn't do it without you. So, as always, I'm JL. I'm Eugene. And I'm Angela. And we'll see you next time. And as always, stay scared.